This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the special session on Apology and Disclosure. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today as the principal discussant, Dr. Robert Trug. Dr. Trug is the Francis Glessner Lee Professor of Medical Ethics, Anesthesia, and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. He is also the Executive Director of the Institute for Professionalism and Ethical Practice at Boston Children's Hospital, where he is also the Senior Associate in Critical Care Medicine. Bob, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. Uh, Bob, we're here as a, a follow-up on an earlier session that you and I did on apology and disclosure. And this program that you've created here at Harvard and is now being used at hospitals throughout the United States. Could you introduce us to the session today? Yeah, so uh, this is the follow-up to the earlier um, World Shared Practice Forum that we did where we went over a number of guidelines and principles to think about um, in the context of talking with patients and families after adverse events and medical errors. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to always just go from the abstract principles to what to do in any particular case. And I think this is particularly true around medical errors where there's a, a, a broad range in how they present from very serious, uh, horrible things to minor things in different settings, outpatient versus inpatient, pediatric versus adult medicine, you know, whether it's primarily involving an error or adverse event related to a physician's actions or a nurse. So what we're going to do here is we're going to go through a few specific cases that represent uh, some of this over, overall spectrum. And we're going to talk about them and, and as a group talk about whether disclosure is appropriate, or some of the ideas that we might want to give our colleagues about how to have the disclosure go better than worse. So that's sort of the plan here. And um, why don't we start with uh, introducing you to some of the, our colleagues here who are going to be helping us in the discussion. Hello, everybody. My name is Linda. I am a neonatal nurse practitioner, and I've worked in the Longwood neighborhood for many years. I currently work in an outpatient clinic at Boston Children's Hospital, where we see pregnant women when there's a concern for a fetal anomaly. Hi everyone, I'm Claire. I work here at Boston Children's Hospital. I am a pediatric intensive care nurse. I've been a nurse for three years now. My name is Katie. I'm a third year uh, fellow in pediatric critical care medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. My name is Ben. I'm currently a second year um, critical care fellow at Boston Children's Hospital. All right, well, why don't we get right down to it and go to the first case. So I'll, I'll read the case, and then uh, if any of you have any questions about it, we'll talk about that before we, we, uh, we get into the discussion. Um, for each of these, I'd like you to think about the case in the following way. Each of you has had training in how to help your colleagues in disclosure after adverse events, and the cases are set up so that one of your colleagues is calling you on the phone and saying, you know, I need some help. Let me tell you about what just happened. Can you give me some advice about how to proceed? All right? Okay, so let's turn to the first case. So this is a call from a PICU attending, 
Um, Katie, we'll say this is a call to you to, to start the discussion, okay? So over the phone, I'll be the pick you attending. Uh, earlier this evening, we admitted a 19-year-old college student with signs of meningitis and septic shock. We intubated him, placed a central line, and resuscitated him with fluid and pressors. After he was stable on pressors, we took him to radiology for a head CT. We completed the CT, but moments after moving him from the scanner to his stretcher, we lost his blood pressure. We quickly attempted resuscitation, but he did not respond, and after about 30 minutes, we stopped the code and declared him to be dead. As we were preparing to take him back to the emergency department, we realized that his CVL had become disconnected in the bed sheets and that none of his infusions or resuscitation meds had actually been administered. So what had probably happened, right, when, in moving from the CT scanner back to the bed, the uh, CVL became disconnected so that the pressors that he was receiving stopped, which probably explains why he had a cardiac arrest in the first place, and then all of the resuscitation meds that were given after that just went into the, into the sheets. His CT scan showed massive cerebral edema and impending tentorial herniation, which I'm sure would have been lethal. So uh, the radiologist told me it was just one of the worst CT scans he'd ever seen, that it was you know, clearly not something anyone would have been able to survive. So we've just arrived back in the ED, um, and I'm about to meet with his family, and I need to tell them that he has died. So do you think I should say anything to them about the problem with the CVL. Before we hear from the panel, I'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world to ask two questions. In your response, please first provide your city and country location. The questions are, how would you approach discussing the events of this case with the family? And also, would you disclose any information about the problem with the central line? So Kenny, what would What's the first thoughts out of your head when uh, giving some advice here? I guess I would say a few things. So when discussing with a family, the first thing they want to know is, is how their child is doing. And so I think it is very important to disclose the, the part about the CVL, which I'll get to in a minute. But I would, I would first just be very upfront and let them know that their child has died. Because if, if you're explaining kind of what happened and then five minutes into it you say their child's died, um, they're going to wonder why, why it took you so long to tell them that. So I would, I would just start with the facts and say that he's died. And then I would let them know, even though they're going to have a very hard time hearing anything that you, you're discussing after that, I would then tell them kind of the, the sequence of events. I would say that he had a devastating uh, finding on his CT scan um, that was consistent with uh, impending death. And I would say, I would tell them the facts of uh, the arrest. And then I would say to them, you know, I do need to disclose to you kind of the, the manner in which he arrested, and I think that the CVL did, did play a part in that. Um, I, I think it's important because I think it's why he died at that time as opposed to dying several hours later or, 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 or a day later. But I, I wouldn't have that be the, the highlight of your conversation because I think they need first and foremost to know that their son is no longer here. Thoughts about that? I agree. Um, I think that's the approach I would also take. The only other thing that I might add is obviously an apology for their loss um, and that I'm not sure in that first conversation I would get to we're going to review this and go back and look at our safety issues around why this happened but I think at some point that might be 
uh, reassuring and helpful to the family that although there was an error in the care of their child, that we hope that would never happen again, and we'll learn from that. So you would you would definitely mention the CVL issue? Yes, I believe I would. Well, so let me just challenge that a little bit. I mean, this is a family who had a you know a healthy 19-year-old son just a short time ago. I mean, once you tell them that he's dead, I mean, are they going to be able to hear anything after that? I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think they're going to remember most of the conversation after the, the sentence where you tell them that he's dead, frankly. But I do think that, uh, I agree with Linda, there's probably going to be several conversations that you will, you will have subsequently. Um, and I wouldn't want them to, to find out later and to wonder why you hadn't mentioned it before that you were trying to hide something. I think you're, just, you're being honest. You're disclosing the facts. It, it is relevant to why he passed away at that specific moment. Um, and I don't think you have to get into lots of details up front, but I think it's probably going to be important later. And if they don't want to talk about it later, that's fine, but at least they, they have all the information. Claire, any thoughts? I agree. I think in the situation, it's quite difficult when you, you're sort of dropping two big pieces of information at the same time, which I agree, I think it's difficult for them to process. Um, and even more difficult to kind of bring on that second piece of information when they're already clearly grieving and upset. But I also agree that it's very important to disclose because it was part of the sequence of events that led to the death at that point. So. I agree, I wouldn't want them to find out later. And I think another piece of that is, like we're saying, I don't think they would come back later. I'm not sure that if you left it for a later conversation, I'm not sure that the family would want to return to the hospital and speak to the physicians. Exactly. So I, I think it's a piece of information that sort of needs to be delivered then if it's going to be. Dan? Uh, I agree with with everything that, that everybody's said in my head. Uh, I was thinking that I think it's important to disclose the, the sequence of events of things that happened, especially with regards to his illness. This was a sequence of events that happened, but he was critically ill with septic shock and meningitis. He had a CT scan prior to his arrest that showed that he had a, a life-threatening amount of brain swelling. And I think it's important to not draw conclusions that we don't know yet. We don't necessarily know that the disconnection of the line um, may have absolutely caused his death at that time, although could potentially and seems like there's a there's definitely a link there, but he was so critically ill that I don't know that we can jump to that Great point. maybe in that first conversation. I mean, he might have just been herniating at that Correct. at that time, right? Yeah, that's true. Now, I mean, we all agree he wasn't going to survive this one way or the other. I mean, do you think there's a risk of in the family's grief of maybe even misinterpreting this. Like, why, you know, why are you even telling me about the problem with the CVL unless that was a likely reason why he died? I mean, um, I mean, he, he died of bacterial meningitis. He didn't die of a CVL becoming connected or... I, th I think you could argue that maybe he, he did, that maybe he died at that moment, uh, at least in part, uh, due to the disconnection of his central venous line. Yeah. And so, um, without getting into too many kind of it depends scenarios, I think it, it it does a little bit depend on the family. Some families want to know every single detail, mm -hmm. um, especially in a in a death that was unexpected. Some families 
you know, it's it's enough for them to know that he that he's dead. But I, I think you can't presume anything when you don't know this family yet. Um, and I just I would be I think you would be amiss to to not tell them this detail when it it might have changed the timing a little bit of when of when he died. And right. we don't know. I agree mm -hmm. with Ben. You have to. I think it's important to state the facts as they are in the timeline as it was. Cause it's very possible that he herniated as he was being transferred. Um, but it's also possible that he was, had impending herniation, but he arrested because he didn't have his vasoactive medications that he would have died 24 hours later. And so it's hard to know. You know, one of the principles that we use when we teach this is the golden rule, kind of what, what would you want if it, if it were you that were involved? Um, when, you, when you think about that for yourselves, would, would, this be, would, would you really feel that you would want, have wanted to know about the CVL issue? I was, I was thinking that question when you were, when you were first asking and um, I was thinking that part of the driving reason for me wanting to say that was that I would want to know that information mm -hmm. if, it, if it was my child. And I'm sure that probably differs for every parent. But for me personally, that was something that I would like to know. Yeah. I, I actually probably would not want to know, uh, frankly, because mm. it, because it wouldn't really matter in the end. Either way, your child is dead. Yeah. Um, but um, it might be something I would want to know later once I'd kind of processed what happened, but um, I would probably feel a little bit more, it would be a little bit more black and white if I didn't know, certainly. Clara, Linda? I think I would want to know, um, just because I, I like to know details, but I think there's another level. It, it's certainly the family's perception, but I'm also thinking about how the person who helped move them, the person taking care of them, how they're going to be, um, counseled and supported through um, realizing that, you know, yes, there was an error and the line was disconnected. How did we miss that? Um, and making sure that uh, we support not only the family but the staff. So I think there's, it's, it's mm -hmm. not as clear cut as it sometimes appears to be, and it's complicated. So I don't, like we started out saying, I don't think there's a right answer here. I think, you know, we all are sort of, I, I'm learning so much more about disclosure and how families want to be told the truth um, and they want to trust you. And if you don't tell them the truth, they're not going to trust you or yeah. trust the system. So, I don't know, it's tricky. I agree. Um, again, with everyone, I think, um, as clinicians, it's easy for us to think with that mindset. And I think I would like to know all the details from that standpoint. And like Linda was saying, I think I would also think of the other clinicians because not only has a terrible event happened to me and my family, but um, has also happened to a clinician. And I think if I were in that position, I, I would want to tell the family. And as a family member, I think I would like to know. Other ideas, Jeff? Um, I'm sitting here uh, and I'm thinking first that you're all very eloquent um, and, and thinking very carefully about this. And, and the one thought that's hitting me is um, uh, culture matters. Uh, so Bob and I are old enough to remember 30 years ago practicing uh, medicine. And it's not as if 30 years ago uh, the average person didn't want to know every detail. But we learned from physicians then who remembered yet another era when families didn't want to know every detail, they would have wanted to know your child was well, your child developed sepsis, your child developed an irreversible brain injury and died. 
and that that would be um, the essence of what they wanted to know, and that um, the premium in our culture at that time was not transparency about every little fact, that they trusted people to tell them what was important. And the, uh, the trade-offs of that system is that it left people with a cleaner memory of the uh, death of their child. And now we're in a culture where I, I agree with you, in our particular culture, but it's, this is being viewed across the world. And what's, what's, what's the premium in our culture might not be the premium for some of our colleagues around the mm -hmm. world, where, no, the lasting memory that families want is, as, as Katie said, um, that your child died from an irreversible process. And that, uh, you know, this disruption in the central line, uh, while maybe changing the time and manner of that death, didn't fundamentally change the picture. <coughs> and so that's what strikes me mm -hmm. about this conversation. You know, I wanted to do this case in part because as, as I've discussed this case with other groups over the years, uh, more than any of the other cases we, we talk about, this is always polarized, and it goes, it's either all extreme one way, you would never tell the family that, it would be cruel, it didn't matter. They, as, as, as Jeff, as you were saying, you know, the kindest thing you can do is to give them the message, the true message, that their child was not going to survive this illness and didn't. To the other side, which is, you know, that this family has every right to know this information and you absolutely must tell them. So, um, so I think, it, you know, it is a hard one in, in that sense. I, I guess I would say just one more thing, is that if you did choose not to disclose, um, I think it would be very important to write down in the chart, um, number one, what happened, because this is still um, an adverse event that needs to be investigated. I mean, you st we still need to do all of the things that we do to make sure that this doesn't happen again, because the next time it is going to matter. Um, and also, you want to be able to reflect in the chart that the, the reasons why you decided not to disclose to the family, out of compassion for, for their loss in the moment, perhaps their inability to completely understand, so that in, if they do come back and, that, and they read that chart, uh, they don't misperceive that you are actually trying to conceal the information that happened. That's a really good Okay, so why don't we move on now to our second case. Um, this involves a nurse, so maybe, Claire, I'll ask you to give your first impressions. We just sewed up a laceration on a four-year-old who cut his leg on broken glass. I assisted in the sedation with ketamine and Versed. He was still sleeping three hours after the procedure, and then I realized that I had based the dosing on pounds rather than kilograms, giving him more than twice the dose that we had intended. Other than being sleepier than normal, he doesn't seem to be showing any adverse effects, except that he is going to have to stay overnight for observation, which was not anticipated. What should we tell the family about what happened? And who should tell them? And now we'd like to turn to the audience and ask a question. In your response, please first provide your city and country location. The question is, how would you approach disclosing this event to the family? and who should be involved in the conversation. I think um, that this is definitely something that needs to be disclosed. I think um, as the family, they might be wondering what went wrong. Why are we going to the ICU? Why do we need to be overnight um, when we weren't originally anticipating this? 
Um, so just from that standpoint, I think they definitely need to know the reason why they're staying longer um, and that it was a medical error. Um, I think as, the, as a nurse, I think I would like to be at least involved in um, giving the information to the parents, um, especially if I were at fault. Um, again, I think that's something that's for the clinician, but I think that um, telling them what you did and what you will do in the future to make sure it doesn't happen again um, is definitely important. And I also think um, you know, getting support from perhaps a charge nurse or um, a physician, if you, if you need um, support for that conversation, yeah, that's great. Great. Thank you very much. Um, other thoughts to add to that? I would add, as much as I would want to tell the family myself, I would want my attending there with me to give me the support and strength um, and maybe have the conversation with me adding to the conversation because I think the family is going to be um, obviously concerned. And I think the other thing I would stress in that conversation is that we anticipate that child is going to be fine, that he is just sleepier, and we expect him to recover without any harm from this. Um, so personally, I want my attending there. And if I was the person that made the error, I think I would be very um, emotional. And so I think I might even bring another nurse or my nursing manager or somebody with me and a social worker so we can have a group discussion that is perhaps multidisciplinary and bring in the supports of all of those people to support the family and understanding what happened. But most importantly, stressing that, you know, your child is going to be okay. It was a medication error and it's just a dosing issue, not just, but it is a dosing issue. and. Um, I would have a hard time having that conversation, I think, by myself. Bob, if I could add, um, it's interesting, Linda, that um, in the last 10 years, um, our hospital has adopted a policy where the uh, conveyance of um, information about an adverse event must come from the attending physician. So uh, Dr. Trug and I practice in an era where often it was the case if it was a nursing-related uh, adverse event, uh, the nurse and perhaps a charge nurse. Um, or another clinician, and the uh, at least some of the purpose um, was to um, make sure that there wasn't a, a diffusion of of information. Uh, everyone assuming that someone else had notified the family, and then it never happening. That was part of it to localize the responsibility, and the other part of it was um, to recognize uh, kind of the the responsibility of the attending for the care provided to their patient, regardless of who's providing the care in this hospital setting, and that we are all uh, together as a team, but at the end of the day, the attending uh, must assure that the family has been notified in a clear and accurate way. And if that hasn't occurred, then the responsibility doesn't rest on uh, the individual who may have been responsible for the adverse event, but the responsibility re relies on the attending for failure to ensure that the family was notified in a timely way, and it stays within 24 hours. So that's, in fact, our hospital policy. So it's interesting. I mean, um, everything you say there, I think, is, is, is correct. And yet we, we do know that research with patients and families show that they really value hearing about the event from the clinicians involved. and. 
that the clinicians themselves can often, not always, but can often benefit from being able to express the regret personally to the family. You know, I'm thinking of a, of a case we had at a nearby hospital where, with the best of intentions, the nurse who was involved in an error was excluded from the conversations. And um, the family was later interviewed about that and said, you know, why, why couldn't we talk to the nurse? And the nurse was saying, you know, if I had a chance to talk to the family, I would have just said how sorry I was that this happened and how badly I feel about it. So I think there's, there's many things that are at play here, but I think one is, is to be cautious about assuming that we are adequately protecting our staff by not having them involved in the conversations. There's great healing, I think, that can take place. The point you make that um, we are operating within a systems environment and the attending represents the integrity of that system is also an important point, though. And it shows that it, we're not just saying that it was a fault of this one person, but it was our entire team that actually needs to take responsibility for it. So, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly how this is all going to come out. And, and in any, any individual situation, it may be um, somewhat flexible. So you may be, as the attending, the one to have that conversation. But you, you, know, you may have Linda or Claire go with you and an opportunity for, for them to, uh, to be a part of that conversation. Sometimes, and Linda, maybe you were sort of on the edge of that, you, know, you may not actually be in a place where that's possible in the moment. And it may be that you'll want to come back at a future time and, and speak with the family uh, later on. Katie, Ben, any, any thoughts about? I, I agree with the, um, the team approach. I think um, I feel it's important to go in with, with multiple people. I think if the person who made the error is able to go and has the opportunity to apologize and, and disclose the information, I think that that is helpful for both the family and for the provider. I think it's important for a physician, whether it be an attending or, or, or a different physician, but I think an attending is ideal to go in mainly to, to, to help disclose information if it's difficult for the person who made the error, but also to, to say that we're, you know, we work on the same team. And yes, so an error right. is not necessarily one person's fault. Maybe I wrote the error, I wrote the medication, but the nurse uh, double, double checked it incorrectly or, or you know, who knows. Um, but I think it's important to say that we're there to support each other. Also, because you don't know how the family is going to react. And so you wouldn't want the person who made the error to be in there by themselves if the family gets angry and they have, they have no support system. Um, and help answer questions. Um, ben, supp suppose yeah. that um, suppose that the child didn't need to stay overnight, just a little slower to wake up, and still within the range of normal. Do you need to tell the family? So I think that I would base my judgment of whether or not to disclose based on the event and not the outcome. Uh, I was thinking that we were lucky here that the child did so well, and I was thinking about whether or not I would d disclose or have to disclose if the child hadn't done well and needed you know, a breathing tube and mechanical ventilation. And so I think that I, I would probably look at the event and decide kind of outside of what the outcome was whether or not to disclose. So if the child had done great and was discharged from the emergency department, I probably still would disclose um, again, leaning on the principle of, is it something that, that I would want to know if it was my child? Mm -hmm. So I think I'd probably err on the side of disclosing. I think it depends a little bit as well on, on the details of the event. So if this medication, if, if 
giving twice the dose of a certain medication is actually still within the range of a normal dose, then and the, the patient had zero adverse effects, I don't know if I would necessarily disclose that information. If it's a medication that's ex extremely toxic when, when, when dosed twice as much, but they somehow miraculously did well, then, then maybe I, w I would tell them, um, especially because we would probably change our policy around how we dose that medication or something. But I think it depends a little bit, um, it depends a little bit on the details. Now, several of you emphasized, you know, making sure that the family knows that their child's going to be okay. Um, and I, I, I agree with that. But there's a little bit of a pitfall there in that by saying, you know, nothing bad happened, it's all okay, um, not a big deal, right? Um, sometimes that can, can kind of boomerang. Like, maybe, maybe not a big deal to you, but really big, really big deal to us. And also, even, even if the child is going to be okay, there's now a potential loss of trust. Like, you guys don't know how to measure out your drugs. I mean, maybe it was okay this time, but maybe it won't be okay next time. So I think that it's important to, f to provide that reassurance, but, but also realize that the trauma for families isn't always just around the outcome. It, it's about the fact that an error happened. I also think that your word choice in this situation is very important because I think that part wall could possibly be breaking the trust knowing that there was an error that occurred. I think if it's the information's del delivered correctly, um, you're able to maintain that trust. I think that, at least from my, in my opinion, I think that if someone were to admit an error to me, I would think that that was brave and honest. So I think um, as a family member, I think that while I might be a, a bit skeptical about the care that comes afterward, I think that it's important, if not necessary, to regain trust, especially if there is an adverse outcome. All right, well, why don't we uh, move on to our third case here. So this is a call from a pediatric ICU attending. So maybe Ben will have you give your first thoughts about it. We just admitted a 12-month-old who was transferred from the emergency department of a local community hospital. He was about to be admitted there to their pediatric floor for treatment of hyponatremic dehydration, having already received 40 cc per kilo of fluid, when he had a seizure that required intubation following three doses of Ativan. So then they realized they had to transfer him to our intensive care unit. So I was there when, uh, when the child arrived and uh, the transport team brought him in. And um, as they were getting him settled, I noticed that the IV fluid that was running was D5W. We sent a stat serum sodium, and it came back 119. I mean, I'm not sure, but it appears that the seizure, the intubation, and the need for the transfer may all have been iatrogenic and related to an error in the IV fluids that were given, since clearly he should not have had glucose water. I'm about to meet with his parents, um, and I'm just wondering, what advice do you have for me about what I should say? Before we hear a response from the panel, we would like to turn once more to the audience to ask a question. In your response, please first provide your city and country location. The question is, how would you approach the family in disclosing these events? So I think in this particular case, um, the, I think that we don't quite know yet whether or not the D5W IV fluids 
led to him having a seizure. It, it could be one uh, reason why, but a couple of things is one, the child came from an outside uh, hospital and I haven't had an opportunity to speak with the physician that was at that hospital or the transport team that brought him over here. And so I don't know what their thinking was uh, when they started these IV fluids or when the IV fluids were started. And then there's other things about the child's medical um, history that we don't quite know. We don't know what his sodium was um, at the outside hospital to start with. Uh, and we don't know whether or not the child may have some other medical physiology that be cause, could be causing him for his sodium to drop you know, this low and result in a seizure. And so um, I think it would take a little bit more investigation before I would disclose that there was a medical error in this case. Um, but I think before I did that, it would um, be talking with the other people that were taking care of him before I uh, received them. So let me make sure I understand your advice here. So um, when I speak with the family, I'm not going to say anything at all about the IV fluids right now. Um, I think that I, you could speak about them in the facts of the case that the child was getting uh, IV fluids with dextrose and not a lot of or no sodium in the IV fluids. And, but I wouldn't say that that was the result of why the child had a seizure. Okay. And are you suggesting I should call over and ask them about the fluids? Yes, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, real good. Thank you very much for first thoughts. Second thoughts, third thoughts. I agree with Ben's approach. I think we don't really know enough to know that's the reason. And I think gathering more information and by explaining it in that way to the family, you're starting to develop your relationship with them. So they are getting to know you, getting to know um, why this has happened to their child. And you want to a, take care of the child's needs immediately, and that is we've put the breathing tube in, we've sent some labs off, we're going to follow those labs and add some electrolytes to his IV fluid and, and, and change the um, infusion, and um, we're going to continue to look into why this happened and we'll be meeting as things evolve and go forward. In a later conversation, when you go back and review things and you have more information, if there was uh, no reason and it was the wrong fluid that was um, infused, then I think, again, you're, you're going to go um, into that conversation with the family knowing you and now trusting you and, um, again, offering them um, a process to go back and and make sure this doesn't happen again to another child. So I think it's it's got a couple of levels there. I think ultimately, if that is the reason that it happened, it would certainly be, um, I think, the right thing to do to disclose that. But I think at this point, you don't have enough information. It's also important not to start off the conversation um, by throwing the, the other hospital or other physicians under the bus. Um, I agree with Ben, you don't know you don't know, A, if that was, they did the, they did those fluids on purpose and they maybe were just misguided. Uh, and so, so you need to do some kind of further education. Maybe it's an adult emergency department that's not used to taking care of, of a 12-month-old. Um, 
or if they ordered the correct fluid and it was just hung wrong, you know, and, and then they need to have a kind of um, policy review at their hospital about checking orders with fluids that are given, or maybe it was the transport team, maybe in the other hospital they were running normal saline. So to start off by kind of assuming that it was um, either a mistake or whose mistake it was and on what level, um, there's just a lot of assumptions there. And I think that that it's never helpful um, with a family to know that your different physicians are, are blaming each other for things. Um, I think you do want to start off with a relationship of trust rather than one of um, creating divisiveness among, amongst their past physicians. It's also maybe a hospital they're going to go back to again. Maybe it's right next to their house. Um, and so I think it's important to gather all the facts. I would disclose that they're on fluids. I would say that I think at least part of this child's seizures are, are due to the hyponatremia. Maybe there's some other, maybe there's a brain tumor that has not been, has not been um, diagnosed yet, but I would say that at least part of the seizures are, are concerning for hyponatremia and that you're going to correct it. And one of the things you're going to do is you're going to change the fluids, but I guess I wouldn't go into the details of how they were or why they were placed. Yeah, I want to use this to circle back to a, a point we discussed in the earlier World Shared Practice Forum about uh, one of the principles is to always share the facts as they are known with the family. There's no point in, in delaying, and really the sooner the better. And yet I, I, I love this conversation because what at first glance may seem like just obvious, you know, you, it seems so clear what happened, but as you begin to explore, well, there's a lot of other possibilities here. And uh, um, holding ourselves back, even though this is the most likely explanation, holding ourselves back until we gather more reliable facts um, is a good thing. Claire, any thoughts? Or? Yeah, I think also as the clinician from the outside hospital, I think um, they may have been in a situation where they may have been confused about the presentation of the child and how they um, escalated so quickly. <clears throat> so perhaps. Um, also, having our team call over could shed some light onto the situation and also, like Kitty was saying, um, help them to maybe come up with protocols that might prevent this event in the future. So um, I think it's definitely necessary for us to call um, the outside hospital and potentially also the um, ambulance team um, and make sure that they're all aware of what we found when the patient was admitted. Um, and I also think it's important not to like everyone's been saying, throw up someone under the bus. Mm -hmm. um, so just by saying, stating the facts, when the patient arrived, we sent off the lab, we noticed the fluids, and here, this is what we would do. Um, we, we would normally hang you know, something with sodium in it to crack this, and that's what we're gonna do. And we'll look into um, your child's disease process more thoroughly and speak to the other hospital. So some of this, um, I would say we're moving into territory that is not well defined at this point. Mm -hmm. um, some some use this as an as a reason why the clinicians should not be talking to each other. Mm -hmm. That you at your hospital ought to report it to your risk management, and they ought to talk to that hospital's risk management. Mm -hmm. Others find that horrifying. That why can't doctors and nurses talk to each other? Mm -hmm. um, and yet you do have that problem that if the other party doesn't take it seriously, now what? What, what do you say to the family, I guess? Let's bring it to that point. Um, the, you know, this seems to be as far as you're going to get with them. Right. Um, do you just let this go? I, I wouldn't, again, because they might be a hospital they're going to go back to. And so mm -hmm. I think it's, um, before I talk to the family, I guess, I would say to that physician, 
I just want to make sure that we're clear and I understood kind of what you did and uh, what the decisions were. And just, I, you know, now that I understand the story better, I want you know that I'm going to go give an update to the family and let them know. Um, I, I don't, I, I, I would be a little hard for me to figure out my phrasing, to be very honest with you, because um, I wouldn't want to say they made an error, um, but I would want to say that it might not have been the, the IV fluids that we would have chosen and probably leave it at that. But I would let that physician know that I'm saying I'm talking to the family so that they, again, aren't blindsided. Um, and if they, if, if they disagree or say, please don't talk to the family, um, you know, then I would probably bump it up a little bit in terms of hospital administration. But again, that's not always an option depending on where you're working. It's a hard one. Mm -hmm. other, other thoughts or ideas about that? I also, I also kind of wonder if that conversation might leave a little chip on your shoulder and the temptation, I think, in this situation would be to, at this point, throw a colleague under the bus. But I think, again, it's important to remember that we, we don't know all the information. And even though it seems as though there's a wall up and we're not going to get that information, we still can't speculate beyond what we already know. So I think it's important to sort of keep that same mindset and then speaking to the parents to say, we're looking into it, we're doing our best to find out the information, but we just don't know if this is what happened. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I appreciate the comments of Katie and Claire, um, and I, uh, I think it resonates. That what, what Claire just said really resonates, that it's tempting to get frustrated, um, but um, as Katie said, we've got to, and Claire said, we've got to find a more effective avenue to uh, fully understand what happened and to try to work with them to uh, put corrective actions into place. I'd like to think that once those corrective actions go into place, that there would be a role to say, you know, let's do a road trip and go out to this hospital and do a little in-service education and review the case and talk about, okay, this is what happened in this case, and this was the outcome, and this could have been prevented by a different policy within your institution or however things should get changed so that they can learn from it and not just be punished by it and feel bad. And giving that physician the benefit of the doubt, that initial reaction could have just been like a shock, like shutdown reaction. And maybe over time, as you know, as things settle down, they would come around to, to something like that. Because I think the, the, the information getting back to the physician is really important, especially because they're going to be caring for patients in the future. Right. Um, so it, it may be that that was just an initial shock reaction and they just need more time. Yeah, and I mean, an, yet another possibility might be to, to say to the family, we're not sure what happened here, but it, it's possible that um, the, their choice of fluids may have had an impact on your child's health. I recommend you go back and talk with them about it. Ask them the questions. So. You know, warning them in a sense that you're going to have this conversation. Um, yeah, you know, the, uh, this, this etiquette that we have of not throwing our colleagues under the bus is, is, is uh, it runs deep. And yet when we're, when we're dealing with errors that happen between institutions, it can be complex. Well, terrific session. And uh, Dr. Trug, thank you for leading us through this. Oh, thanks to everybody. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.